The Acheron is a tough nut to crack. More than twice our guns, more than twice our numbers. And they will sell their lives dearly. They mean to take us as a prize. <laughs> and we are worth more to them undamaged. Their greed will be their downfall. England is under threat of invasion. And though we be on the far side of the world, this ship is our home. This ship is England. Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. This is our third week looking at the French Revolution and its aftermath. After the fall of Robespierre in July of 1794 and the end of the Reign of Terror, there will still be multiple factions vying for power. It was October 1795 by the time a five-member committee known as the Directory was in charge, but they faced many of the same issues that plagued the country since before the beginning of the Revolution. While they did put an end to the excessive executions, the economy was still a mess, and after several military defeats, the Directory no longer had support from the various factions at play. The stage was set by 1799 for a coup d'etat by Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon was born in 1769 on Corsica, an island in the Mediterranean between France and Italy. Indeed, the island became a part of France right around the time of his birth. When he was nine, Napoleon began school on mainland France, first at a religious school, then at a military academy. French was not his native tongue. He grew up speaking Corsican and Italian, only learning French once he got to school in France. He spoke with a Corsican accent throughout his life, which, among other things, caused him to be bullied growing up. He seems to have been fairly introverted and a good student. In his teens, he entered the École Militaire in Paris. That just translates as military school, but it is the name of the school. He graduated in September 1785, so we're less than four years from the storming of the Bastille, and became a second lieutenant in an artillery regiment. He actually took some time off during the start of the revolution and was back home in Corsica. He supported Robespierre's corner of the revolution and was at the same time a strong advocate for Corsican independence. In July of 1792, so about six months before Louis XVI was executed, he was made a captain in the French army. He just seems to have been a very competent leader early on and quickly advanced through the ranks. By age 24, he was a brigadier general and led the artillery for French action in Italy. There seems to have been some risk of Napoleon falling out of favor after the death of Robespierre, and he didn't see eye to eye with how the French leadership sought to use him. But he thrust himself into their good graces when he helped put down an insurrection of royalists and counter-revolutionaries. He was given complete command over the French army in Italy, and this is where his real rise began. He conquered the Italian peninsula for France in less than a year. This was followed by a somewhat successful campaign into Egypt to disrupt British interests and strengthen French ones. Incidentally, it was during this campaign that the famed Rosetta Stone was discovered by the French. And indeed, the fascination the Western world has with Egypt dates back to Napoleon's expedition there at this time. By the time Napoleon returned to Paris in 1799, he was a national hero. He secured a few key allies and on November 9th, when he was 30 years old, seized control of the French government from the unpopular directory. Officially, he was simply the first consul of the French Republic. But for all intents and purposes, he was a military dictator. But again, the people loved him. He stabilized the chaos that had plagued France for more than a decade. It wasn't perfect, but he was able to 
take advantage of land and resources gained through their military conquests and sold off some church lands and a giant swath of North America to a young United States, the Louisiana Purchase. In 1804, Napoleon declared himself the emperor of the first French empire. Napoleon was so dominant on the battlefield that Britain, Russia, and the Holy Roman Empire united into the so-called Third Coalition in order to challenge him. And this brings us to the opening text of Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. It says, April 1805, Napoleon is the master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. We see the HMS Surprise off the north coast of Brazil. It has 197 men and 28 cannons on board. Now, Master and Commander is based on novels from a series by Patrick O'Brien. It does not give us a historical tale, but does do a great job of giving us a feel for the world at this time and specifically life aboard a military ship. Russell Crowe plays Captain Jack Aubrey, who, like most of the characters in the film, is fictional, but who is actually based on the real-life Admiral Thomas Cochrane. The HMS Surprise was an actual ship, which, incidentally, was a captured French ship used by the Royal Navy, but it was decommissioned and sold in 1802, three years before this film takes place. So, I'll be brief with the plot, as it is fictional. Captain Aubrey's orders are to intercept the French privateer Acheron, which is en route to the Pacific Ocean. They get into a fight with the ship early and take extensive damage, losing nine men, not including the wounded. They only escape due to a heavy fog. This all seems par for the course. They get right back to work patching the ship while still sailing on. Sails are mended. Planks with cannon holes are covered up and replaced. The ship is painted and looks good as new. We do get mention of Lord Nelson, a British war hero who Captain Aubrey had the pleasure of meeting many years before. He was an admiral of the Royal Navy who was very successful during the Napoleonic Wars. I suppose now is as good a time as any to mention the fact that it was the success of the British Navy that kept Napoleon's successes to just the mainland continent of Europe. He was never able to attempt an invasion of the British Isles due to the Royal Navy's dominance of the seas. Little do our characters here know that Lord Nelson will die in battle six months later at the Battle of Trafalgar, just off the coast of Spain. It was a major British victory, and Lord Nelson was forever immortalized. Trafalgar Square in London is named for this battle, and a statue of Lord Nelson stands atop a 50-meter-tall monument in the square. Back to the film, they think they are chasing the Akron south along the coast of Brazil, but suddenly the French vessel appears behind them. The implication is that they are doomed with a faster, stronger ship coming up on their defenseless rear. Captain Aubrey, however, comes up with a genius plan. At night, they set out a tall raft behind them and light it up like it's the back of their ship. They then douse their own lights and turn 90 degrees away from their original path. The Acheron follows the decoy, and come morning, the British ship is now in pursuit of the Acheron. The men are in awe of Aubrey and say they don't call him Lucky Jack for nothing. However, with rough weather and the challenge of trying to catch up to a faster ship, the men would really rather just go home. They would never say this to their beloved captain, of course, but he hears of it through the ship's doctor, played by Paul Bettany. They round Cape Horn at the southern tip of South America. Their goal now is to just protect English whaling ships based out of the Galapagos Islands from the Acheron. Indeed, they soon pick up a life raft of stranded whalers whose ship had been captured by the Acheron. About the time they're ready to give up, the Acheron is spotted, and the men disguise their ship as a whaling ship. 
They put up a fake flag and give it a whole new paint job and fake name. The French take the bait and pull right up alongside our heroes to capture them. The crew of the aptly named Surprise springs their trap and in a costly and bloody battle captures the Acheron, a major victory for the British Navy and a defeat for Napoleon's forces. Again, this didn't happen, but it really is a very good film and does a great job of exploring the time period. It just uses fictional characters to get us there. Master and Commander has an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes and was nominated for Best Picture in 2003. It won the Oscars for Best Cinematography and Sound Editing. Now, we have some more stories that can help us continue through the timeline of Napoleon. The first destination that Bill and Ted travel to on their excellent adventure is Austria, 1805. Their guide Rufus tells them that the French have just invaded. So, based on my research then, this has to be the Battle of Austerlitz, which took place on December 2nd, 1805. The historical record doesn't mention Napoleon's nearly full-day absence as he visited Sam Dimas, California in 1988, but presumably he has his forces so well prepared that the outcome was a foregone conclusion. In fact, the French victory at Austerlitz is widely to believe to be Napoleon's greatest military accomplishment. It's the battle that effectively put an end to the Holy Roman Empire. In the next two years, Napoleon followed this up with the defeat of Prussia in 1806 and Russia in 1807. Quick note, as I can never remember, Prussia was a kingdom in what today roughly covers northern Germany and Poland. Again, the borders were all just different back then. So in 1787, things calmed down a bit, but the rest of Europe wasn't happy with French dominance. The novel War and Peace and all its film and television adaptations take place during the era of the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. The book opens in 1805, the same year as Master and Commander, and the Battle of Austerlitz. I read this book in college and do plan to reread it at some point. Its reputation is simply for its length, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Tolstoy brings up a very interesting question as I remember it. Did Napoleon rise to power based on his own merits and would have come to power no matter when he had been born? Or were the conditions in France and Europe at the time such that someone was going to come to power and it just happened that it was Napoleon? It's the question one can see Malcolm Gladwell tackling today. I think the answer was both, with the dial leaning slightly more toward the situation in Europe. Surely Napoleon would never have become Emperor of France without the French Revolution clearing the path for him. And it's impossible to know to what extent someone else would have filled his role had there been no Napoleon. A major chunk of War and Peace is devoted to Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812. The French dominate the Russians and capture Moscow. But Napoleon's first major mistake is underestimating the Russian people and Russian winters. Upon fleeing their capital, the Russians burn Moscow, so the French effectively control nothing. So, after a month or so, the French start marching home, but they were completely unequipped for the harsh Russian winter that set in as they left Moscow. The Russians nipped at the retreating French like wolves, and Napoleon returned to France with only 27,000 men from the nearly 700,000 he had entered Russia with. If only he had listened to Ted on the stage at San Dimas High School. Napoleon detailed his plan to invade Russia, and Ted said, I don't think it's going to work. This gave the rest of Europe the opening it needed. A coalition of seven European nations, plus several German states, finally defeated Napoleon at the Battle of Leipzig on October of 1813 in present-day Germany. The coalition captured Paris in the spring of 1814, and Napoleon was forced into exile on the island of Elba, off the coast of Italy. The monarchy was restored for the time being. The younger brother of Louis XVI was crowned Louis XVIII. 
16th son would have been 17, but he died in 1795 at the age of 10. Foul play is possible, but far from certain. He had suffered at the hands of his family's captors, but may have likely just died of illness. And this leads into my favorite book of all time, The Count of Monte Cristo. It opens on February 24th, 1815. And the whole plot is set into motion when our main character, Edmond Dantes, is framed for being a supporter of Napoleon, a treasonous crime now that the Bourbon dynasty is back in power. It does appear that the captain of his ship may have passed a message to Napoleon on Elba, but Edmund had no knowledge of it. He is imprisoned and forgotten about by the authorities. Unfortunately so too, as just after this, Napoleon escaped from Elba and returned to France. The army quickly defected back to their favorite general, and by March 20th, Napoleon was reinstated as emperor, and the king fled France. None of this is really in the Count of Monte Cristo. That story stays with the imprisoned Edmund, but I just wanted to mention it. Once he beefed his army back up, Napoleon immediately went on the offensive, only to meet his ultimate and most famous defeat, the Battle of Waterloo in modern Belgium. The French people were now over their Napoleon obsession. On June 22, 1815, Napoleon abdicated his position of emperor and passed the role to his four-year-old son, but this didn't stick. The boy wasn't even in Paris, and the leaders left behind invited Louis XVIII to return to the throne. Napoleon this time was exiled by the British to St. Helena, an island off the west coast of southern Africa, where he died six years later at the age of 51. So, the French Revolution and the Napoleonic era are at an end for us. As I don't plan to do an episode on it, I do want to briefly mention Les Miserables, whether the novel, the musical, or any of the movie versions. Les Miserables, as I said last week, is not set during the French Revolution. It is set during the June Rebellion of 1832. I'm not going to keep dissecting 19th century France. (laughs) It's just time to move on. But the Bourbons came to an end in 1830, and a distant cousin of theirs, with the backing of the people, rules as the King of France until 1848. And before ultimately establishing a republic again, a nephew of Napoleon will rule as emperor from 1852 to 1870, but that's getting way ahead of our timeline. Elsewhere in the world around this time were not just political revolutions, but the Industrial Revolution. The pace of change in the world is on an avalanche now that we're still writing today in the internet age. The same decade that saw Napoleon fall saw the works of Beethoven and the classic novels Pride and Prejudice and Frankenstein, both by female authors, Jane Austen and Mary Shelley. Steam locomotives showed up in 1804, the first electric motor in 1829. The oldest known photograph dates back to 1826 in France, where we've just spent so much time. But other areas were still in dire need of change. Slavery was still a major part of the U.S. economy. And next week, we'll look at a revolt on a slave ship in the 1997 film Amistad. 